What are the latest research findings regarding ICU delirium and cognitive impairment? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dr. Wesley Ely. Dr. Ely is a professor of medicine at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Ely specializes in pulmonary and critical care medicine with a focus in geriatrics. Dr. Ely founded the Vanderbilt ICU Delirium and Cognitive Impairment Study Group. Dr. Ely, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you so much, Susan. It's my privilege to be here. Tell us about the ICU Delirium and Cognitive Impairment Study Group. Well, this is a group that's been working together for about 10 years at Vanderbilt University, and it grew from just a clinician and a research ICU nurse into a group that's now over 30 different investigators spanning the spectrum of nursing physicians, clinical pharmacologists, psychiatrists, neurologists, statisticians, you name it. And all of us have the similar link and passion that patients in the intensive care unit are experiencing a great and under-recognized form of organ dysfunction, that is delirium, during the ICU, and that after critical illness, these patients are then going out into the world expected to kind of recoup their life, but unfortunately, many of them, the majority, are having a form of long-term cognitive impairment that is commensurate basically with mild to moderate dementia, having acquired it essentially during the ICU. And so we come together seeking answers to important clinical questions. What led to your interest in this area? My mentor, Bill Hazard, who's one of the founding fathers of geriatrics in the United States, kept asking me, Wes, what will be the difference in the way that we need to handle the old patients with critical illness in the ICU that are coming down the track here, this huge train of people that are going to fill up our ICUs around the world for the next decades, and how will their care need to be different? And so we began in the late 90s looking at what were the determinants of the outcomes, survival and quality of life in these older patients. And it looked more and more like our initial hunches were wrong. Susan, we thought that our initial hunches were that the lungs, which is the primary reason for somebody getting into an ICU, the need for a ventilator, would be the main determinants. But that was not the case. Lungs in the old get better just as fast as lungs in the young. It's just that the non-pulmonary things like the brain take major hits. Tell us about your current research. Well, we're investigating how often the brain dysfunction occurs in older and younger patients in the ICU. And for those listeners who may be in their 30s or 40s and think that this only applies to those 65 and above, that's certainly not the case. It turns out that we have found through our research that about 70 to 80 percent of people who come into an ICU and require a ventilator, for example, or any other form of real life support, that they get delirium. And this delirium, through our research, has been linked to a threefold higher rate of death by six months and also to probably in the neighborhood of twenty to $30,000 in excess care in many cases, but this would be translated into billions of dollars across the country per year. And also a form of long-term cognitive impairment that I've mentioned before is somewhat similar to dementia. So in addition to defining these areas, we are now also undergoing or conducting randomized controlled trials investigating different treatment strategies to try and reduce this problem. Are particular patients more at risk? Yes, it appears that, for example, 
uh, people who come into the ICU with any element of pre-existing brain dysfunction, such as somebody who had had a mild dementia or who perhaps had trauma to their brain earlier in life, or somebody who, for example, had done a lot of drinking and drugs early in their life, any of these people who get critically ill, since they have some underlying degree of brain damage, have tremendous problems on the back end of critical illness. What does traditional medicine say about confusion and delirium? Uh, Great question. Traditional medicine basically says, uh, don't worry about this. Everybody in the critical care unit gets confused. It's not a big problem. And in fact, most nurses or doctors would simply call this ICU psychosis. ICU psychosis is a term that we're really trying to get rid of because it breeds complacency about this. How can delirium be prevented? We never can 100% prevent delirium, but the manifestations of delirium that we've been seeing over the past few years lend themselves to certain areas that really could be focused on with a great degree of hope in relation to prevention. These would be things like giving less of the overuse of sedation and analgesia. We never want to leave people in pain, but it turns out that a lot of times we get pain controlled and then keep giving a lot of excess analgesia and sedative. And those two types of drugs, when given more than needed, probably contribute to a lot of unnecessary delirium. Is there a risk of causing suffering in critically ill patients while trying to prevent delirium? There could be if you swing the pendulum so far, as I just indicated, to leave people without adequate analgesia to control their pain. But if you do make sure that you control pain first and prioritize that area and then only give as much as is seemingly required, I think there is not a risk. We will not leave people to suffer in the ICU, but we have to remember that delirium itself is a form of suffering because people tell us after the intensive care unit and their delirium that it was tremendously upsetting, worrisome, and scary to them to be in this delirious state. So they remember Oh, they remember it, but unfortunately, they remember it erroneously. For example, somebody in the ICU who's having a Foley catheter uh, managed to drain their urine out of their bladder, and the management of that Foley catheter can sometimes be misinterpreted, for example, as rape, or somebody who is being kept on a ventilator and is having a delusion or hallucination might think that people are ganging up on them to kill them in the ICU. And we have definitely reports of both of these two things on our website where people can listen and or read from patients' own experiences. Dr. Ely, you've been quoted as saying ICU delirium and cognitive impairment is a major public health program that has to be addressed. Tell us more. Well, this is a problem if you consider that intensive care occupies between 1% and 2% of the entire domestic national product of the United States. And the ICU is a massive situation in healthcare right now such that most hospitals are essentially becoming like large ICUs. You have to be very sick, in other words, to be in a hospital. If you then consider that all of these thousands of hospitals across the country have all of these critical care beds, and in those critical care beds right now, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60,000 people or more as we speak are experiencing this form of organ dysfunction, this delirium, or brain dysfunction. That is a heck of a lot of people across our country having this form of brain dysfunction, most of which is completely missed by medical professionals because the minority, only the minority, do actively monitor for this form of brain dysfunction, leaving the majority of patients to have this not even monitored actively. And then when they get out of the ICU, they leave to go on to have this acquired dementia in the majority of circumstances, again, completely missed by the medical professionals. How is the acquired dementia treated? 
it's essentially not treated. Uh, we don't know how to cure it, for example, but beyond that, it's not even really picked up. Most of the patients simply go out into the world and find that they can no longer do their previous job. They have to retire early. They cannot find their car in a parking lot or balance their checkbook and probably even have trouble in many circumstances even just doing a shopping list in a grocery store. So those people live in their own little private nightmare in relationship to this, and they don't seek help or get help very often. What's your best advice to healthcare professionals who are just becoming aware of the nature of this issue? What should they be doing? These healthcare professionals should read some of the recent literature. They should go perhaps to our website, and I'm, I've got nothing to sell there. This is purely educational. But our website, icudelirium.org, or I-C-U-D-E-L-I-R-I-U-M, has data on it for the lay public, for patients and families, but also lots of information for hospitals that want to begin to monitor for delirium using well-validated instruments that now only take 20, 30 seconds at the bedside to figure out if somebody's having delirium. And then we have a treatment algorithm on the website for how doctors and nurses should think through what to do when somebody does have delirium. What information is on the website for the lay public? Quite a bit. There's information about what to think of when their father, grandfather, or child, for example, or just loved one has delirium. We try and explain to you in in lay terms what this delirium really is, what the implications are for their recovery. Importantly, we have patient videos so they can see other patients either experiencing delirium and or being evaluated for it and really have a better understanding of what the medical world now knows about this malady. And what's the difference between confusion that has no long-term adverse effects versus delirium? How do you tell the difference? Well, simply just that confusion is a more generic or lay term. It's a component of delirium, but the delirium really pivots on the presence of inattention. That is, the inability of your loved one to pay attention to simple commands, like in the confusion assessment method, the CAM ICU that we use at the bedside to diagnose delirium, we simply ask the loved one, squeeze my hand whenever you hear me say the letter A. And we recite 10 letters, say save a heart. And if they can, re- if they can get 8 out of 10 correct squeezes on A or not squeezing on a non-A, like an S or a B, for example, then they are able to pay attention. If they can't do that simple command, taking us 10 seconds to assess, then they have inattention. And that's the pivotal feature for the diagnosis of delirium. How do particular drugs help or hurt? Well, there are a lot of drugs, especially some, for example, like sedatives, including benzodiazepines, Ativan, Librium, Valium, that we give in the ICU that are helpful if somebody really needs them, but oftentimes are given to excess. And these drugs are very, we say, deliriogenic. They lead to the delirium. And so we want to try and minimize the use of those drugs and only use them when they're absolutely required. How does sleep deprivation dovetail? Dovetails very intimately in this situation. Sleep research in the ICU is definitely in its infancy, but it's most certainly a risk factor for delirium, so that we think that people, when their eyes are closed, perhaps getting sedation, that they're sleeping. But we are now doing some very sophisticated sleep studies at Vanderbilt University, and others are around the world as well, showing that people can get as little as one hour of real sleep a a day during their ICU experience. Now, if you think about how hard that would be for you or me, to deal with one hour a day, think about how much worse it is in the scenario where somebody's got a life-threatening illness and they're barely hanging on and they're still only getting one hour a day of sleep. That's tragic.
How do you address that problem with the lights on all day, people going in and out literally all day? Well, and at night. The lights are on at night, they're going in and out at night, and the beeps and buzzers never stop. So one of the components of the treatment algorithm that we have on our website uh, under delirium management, you can see this component on our website, is to simply focus on trying to reestablish day-night cycles so that we have to get away from the concept that we do bathing in the middle of the night simply because there's less to do at night and we, we assign that to the nighttime nurses. We have to make nighttime dark, quiet, and for sleep with less waking up and less required and make daytime for daytime. Lights on, windows open, reorienting the patient and loved one, etc. Dr. Ely, thank you for joining us to discuss ICU delirium and cognitive impairment. Thank you so much. It's definitely been my privilege. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments at ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of the ReachMD library. Thank you for listening.